Good morning. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, God, your word tells us that when we pray to you, we stand in your presence. This is an awesome thing that we have, an awesome gift, an awesome blessing as we stand in your presence. Let none of us throw prayers to you. Let none of us think that we are doing a ritual or a chant. Let none of us do anything but realize that when we pray, we're standing in the awesome presence of God Almighty. Your holiness is kept from our eyes because they could not handle it. We would go blind to look upon your holiness. And yet Jesus tells us when we pray to pray, holy is your name. Lord, your name is the name above all names. As if no other name exists but your name this morning and forevermore. Lord, every worry, every world, every political problem, every disease, every sickness, every bill to be paid, every one of life's struggles, let us put them out of our mind for this moment as we encounter you in your word. Let us feel the gravity of being in your presence. Lord, as your word is opened up, and as we pray to you, we speak back to you what you have already spoken. God, you are holy. Let the world see your holiness on our faces this week. Like the children of Israel saw your holiness on the face of Moses after he had been with you. Moses would walk away and your glory would depart from his face because his glory was never an eternal glory. But today, for those of us who know Jesus, we have an eternal glory on our faces. Showing that you live within us and you never depart from us. God, where the world asks, where are you? Let them look to us and say, he lives within his people. You promised that there would be a day where you would pour out your spirit. You would pour it out. It would be poured on us. Not sprinkled. This isn't a sip of your spirit. It is a pouring of your spirit in us. And let your spirit be so evident in our lives that people might ask, where can I receive a water that will never make me thirst again? God, we are one body, united in one spirit, many members, 
Teach us to love you more. Teach us to love one another more. May we glorify you this morning. Amen. I'm going to move my Bible down here because the weight of it is just going to keep pushing down on this this piece here. But all of my scriptures are here. If you're like me, the last couple of weeks have been particularly depressing. It feels like every time you turn on the news that there's another mass shooting. Someone has killed many people. Innocent from worldly standards, but innocent nonetheless. These aren't actions of retaliation, they are proactive assaults on innocent people. And you can begin to ask yourself, where's God? Why is this happening? You know, Christian, if you have a quick answer to that, you're certainly not speaking in the heart of David who asked many times, God, how long? When are you going to avenge yourself and your name? As I was at the gym this week, I was on my elliptical machine, which is my, that's my favorite machine because I got bad knees. And I look up on the, the screen and it says, breaking news, 30 people dead from a car running people over, a truck in France. As you know, that number rose to some over somewhere around 90 now. And I just began to ask, and I got emotional, where are you, God? It was said that many children died in that. And I asked that question, where are you? When will you stop this? When will you avenge your name? Why do you allow the wicked to win these days? How can it ever be that one man would pay the penalty? Would ever be justice? How can justice be served that one man lost his life, but 90 or some odd people lost theirs? How can his one life pay back the 90? Or the one man in the 50? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. It is foolish to not believe in God. It is human to ask, where are you? This morning, I want to talk about the foolishness of unbelief. I am afraid that some of us might be teetering between the two. And we might be asking ourselves this morning, where are you, God, and confusing that with unbelief. But I want to talk this morning about what unbelief is. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Psalm 14.1. You could also turn to Psalm 53 for that matter. 
Psalm 53 is just a repeat of Psalm 14. It's simple. I just want to unpack this one verse today. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Modern English dictionaries, when they define the word fool, our contemporary vernacular defines the word fool as, as someone who is unwise, who acts unwise, or who acts in imprudence. Someone who is silly. Someone who is duped. Basically someone who is stupid. So that when we use the word fool, we mean something like a, a dumb person. He's foolish. He's dumb. But when the Bible uses the word fool, it incriminates the fool. It is a condemnation of a conscientious and hard-headed decision. A decision, a moral culpability that the fool has who says in his heart, there is no God. This is no accident that the fool has said there is no God. The difference between the modern definition of fool then and the biblical definition of fool is this. The fool in the Bible is responsible for his foolishness. He has made a choice to be foolish. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1.32 says, For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. Notice that the fool says in his heart. The fool despises wisdom and instruction. He turns away. He is complacent. The fool is morally responsible for his rejection of God. But this is the rejection of a specific God. David is not talking about Krishna here. He's not speaking about the big guy in the sky. He's not speaking about your own personal definition of God. David is saying the fool says in his heart... There is no God, the God of Scripture. The fool says in his heart and rejects in his heart Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus explained that Moses and the prophets and the poets of the Old Testament were talking about him. So that when we read a passage like Psalm 14, 1, and it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, the fool is saying there is no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has not rejected the Father only. He has not rejected a man-made ideal. He has not rejected the philosopher's God. He has rejected Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, the fool is ultimately sinful in his choice to reject the triune God. It is a decision to rebel against the knowledge of God from what is plainly revealed about Him through what has been made. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.18-23. through 23. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Watch how the Bible yet again interprets the fool as morally responsible for his decision. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they, that is the fool, man, all men, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and here's that word, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Someone asked me this week, why did God make us if he knew evil things were going to happen? Why did God make us? Wouldn't it have been better to have been never born than born and have to suffer all of this evil? The answer to that question is no, because God does only good things and God made us. So ultimately, the direction you go is always in the right direction of saying, no, God is good. What he did was good. But ultimately, these evil things that have happened are not God's fault. If we're teetering on this balance between unbelief and rejection, one thing we need to understand before we go over the edge and say, I don't believe, I'm going to be foolish, and I'm going to reject God, the one thing we better understand before we do that is, A, that we're morally responsible for rejecting God, and that B, we're morally responsible for the things that caused the rejection in the first place. People kept asking, how could God let this happen? And my thought was, did he pull the trigger? Was it God who hated all races, or from one man made all the nations that they might find their way and seek him? Before you go over that edge and you say, I don't believe in God, make sure that you understand you're responsible for that rejection and you're responsible for the evil in this world. You and I in Adam. What may be known about God is plain. It is obvious. Adam spoke with God on a daily basis. You think Adam didn't know he was special when it was just him and Eve in the garden? 
You think Adam didn't know there was a special relationship when God spoke with Adam and it wasn't abnormal for God and Adam to have a conversation? Adam had everything at his fingertips that he needed to have a relationship with God and he still disobeyed. People say, what about the people who've never heard Jesus? What difference does it make? When we hear him, we still rebel against him, don't we? No one seeks after God, says Paul, quoting David. No one wants him. No one wants him nor his order. All have suppressed the truth about God. So that Paul can say, all are without excuse. There's intellectual atheism or intellectual unbelief. People who say, well, you know, I don't believe because there's no good answers for God. There's plenty good answers for God. I could bore you to tears with the explanations of cosmology. The explanations of teleology and the way that the universe was created and the the natural consequence that it takes you to a definite beginning and that definite beginning itself has to be uncaused. There has to be an uncaused causer. There cannot be an infinite past. It's impossible for there to be an infinite past. You can go into the future infinitely, but you can't go backwards infinitely. I could bore you to tears with that. But I'm not convinced that'll convince you. Because to those who are perishing, should God himself reveal himself like he did with Adam in the garden? To those who are perishing, the wisest of the wise is foolishness to his eyes. There's emotional atheism. I can't believe in God who allows evil to happen. I I just can't believe that God would allow evil to happen to me. I spoke with someone one time about this. I said, you got to make up your mind. Either you don't believe in God or you're mad at him, but it can't be both. That doesn't make sense. Why be mad at something that doesn't exist? What are you mad at? There's functional atheism. This is probably the scariest. It's those of us who live as if there is no God. We're just apathetic. We just don't care. That's where most of us fall today. If I ask the average person living their life, they're indifferent about God. That type of worship, that type of response to God, indifference about Him, Jesus says, that makes me sick at my stomach. I'll vomit you out. Would that you were either hot or cold. But your indifference makes Jesus vomit. So either pick Him or don't pick Him. But this indifference between sometimes serving God as God or sometimes serving manna, you can't have two masters, pick one or the other, but this indifference makes Jesus sick at his stomach. Read Revelation 3. You cannot be indifferent about God. But despite the excuses of intellectual difficulties and emotional struggles and our apathy, There's no escaping this one reality. Whatever boat we're going to find ourselves in, if we're going to be rejecting God, 
There's no escaping this one reality. We are without excuse for what we do with the knowledge of God. Our passage this morning, though, has more to say about the fool. The fool does not merely say there is no God. He he actually sets his heart in opposition to God. He opposes God. And all of the corollaries that necessarily follow from believing in him. He doesn't just say there is no God and that's that. No. You you can't just take away God and say that's that. The greatest atheist, probably, uh, greatest atheist philosopher who ever lived, Friedrich Nietzsche, knew that much. You can't just destroy the idea that God doesn't exist or be indifferent about it. Once you answer either yay or nay, your life goes in one of two directions. There are great consequences for saying there is or there isn't a God. Frederick Nietzsche wrote, he was an atheist and he wrote a parable, the parable of the madman. I want to read it really quickly. Have you not heard of the madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours? He ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost, asked one. Did he lose his way like a child, asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or emigrated? Thus they yelled and they laughed. Almost like Elijah was laughing at the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Maybe he's gone to relieve himself, mocking Baal's absence, saying, Baal, maybe he's gone on a vacation, knowing all along that Baal is not there. The men and the women of our generation think God is not there and laugh about it. He goes on, the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Where is God? He cried. I will tell you. We have killed him. You and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backward and sideward and forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light our lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition gods too decompose God is dead God remains dead and we have killed him 
You kill God. You wipe away the memory of God. Fool. And you say there is no God. Fool. Secular society. Fool. You say there is no God. And you are going to unchain the earth from its sun. Where will we go now? Where is the up and down now? What is the reference point for right and wrong? Yourself? God forbid it. The reference point for the man who mowed down 90 people was himself. He made that decision. He followed an evil idolatry. Every racist follows himself. Every rapist and murderer follows himself. God is dead. And there are consequences for this. With unbelief comes purposelessness and a loss of human identity. If there is no God, what is the meaning of life? Now quickly, good, good atheist philosophers like Greg Epstein, John Figdor will come running in, and, and people like Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, they'll run in and say, of course there's meaning to life. Well, not Richard, not Richard Dawkins. But they'll come in and they will try, as Nietzsche said in the parable, to light their own lanterns, to now be their own light to the world of darkness. And make sense. Create a noble lie as to why there's meaning and purpose in life now that God is dead. Our society has rejected God. We don't need him. And we fail to see that when we do, we've blown out the light that once gave us direction. Where's the meaning of life? We all light our own lanterns and walk blindly in the darkness, searching for some kind of meaning. We have unchained the earth from its sun. And there are consequences to that. Now this is not to say that when we deny God that we become as morally reprehensible as possible. As G.K. Chesterton once said, when a person becomes an atheist, it's not that they don't believe in anything, it's that they believe everything. When a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing, he believes in anything. Every time we turn on the news or read the paper, do we, does anybody read the paper anymore? I've never read the paper. Anytime we read the internet... What do we constantly see reiterated? Do what makes you happy. Seek your own fulfillment. Let people decide for themselves how they'll live their own life. Don't worry about others. You do you. I'll do me. I'll worry about me. You've got no right to stick your nose in my business. You don't have a right to condemn me for my life. 
It's not that this world is a world now believing in nothing. It's a world of believing in everything. Nothing's wrong anymore. Nothing. Who gave you the right to come and tell me that my life is wrong or sinful? It's, after all, what makes me happy. That's the ultimate goal. What makes me happy. I am now God. Isn't that always the original sin? Wasn't that exactly what Adam did that was so wrong? Was there anything wrong with eating a piece of fruit? No. What was wrong is that God forbid that that fruit be eaten and therefore it was wrong. The sin was not fruit eating. The sin was disbelief in God. Rejection of God. All of the things you see that disturb you, confusion over gender, confusion over marriage, confusion over crime, confusion over who's right in this race battle, all of these things are symptoms of one thing. One thing. Though they knew God, they neither glorified Him nor worshipped Him. These are symptoms of one great sin. All of the evils of society are symptoms of one great sin. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. And everything follows. But certainly someone's going to say to me, well, well, you're not saying that atheists are immoral people or that they're, they're, they, they do, they're, that all atheists are rapists and murderers. No. As Greg Epstein, one atheist or humanist chaplain has said, to suggest that one can't be good without belief in God is not just an opinion, a mere curious thing. It's a prejudice. It may even be discrimination. After all, would you ever ask, is it possible to be a good person if you're Muslim or Buddhist or Jewish or Christian? He's right. Of course, atheists and non-believers can be good people. The question is why? The Bible doesn't teach that the person who does not believe in God is as morally bad or reprehensible as they can possibly be. Total depravity doesn't mean utter depravity. Not everybody's a Hitler who doesn't believe in God. But the global evidence of Holocaust terrorism, human sex trafficking, rape and incest, exploitation of the poor, racial discrimination and racial oppression, wars and rumors of wars, all of these things are the results of the heart that says there is no God. The bloodiest century of mankind was the 19th or 20th century, the 1900s. And two worldviews prevailed in, those, in that century. 
Marxism and Nazism. And both worldviews rejected God. In their wisdom, in the beauty of their flags and the grandeur and the gold and their guns and their machines, they destroyed the world. 50 million people died. That's South Florida, the entire population of South Florida wiped out 12 times. 50 million people. It's estimated that communism, that Marxism has wiped out somewhere between 75 and 100 million people. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And if he says that, there are dire consequences. But men can do good things, sure. A moral conscience is part of God's common grace to believers and unbelievers alike. You might even say that God gives a moral conscience to all unbelievers for the sake of believers. Because if unbelievers didn't have God's common grace, God's conscience that he has placed in their heart, there would be no end to their attempt to devour the church. There was a firewall between what Satan could do to the people of God. It was that he had to first go to God. He can't just act without God's permission. Remember what Peter said? Or Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Satan came before with the, the men, the, the, the angels, and came before God and said, I want to go after Job. And God led him. God has given these men, these unbelievers, a firewall to hold them back from devouring the church before it's time. But the Bible tells us that everyone can do good. Romans 2, 14 and 15. Luke 6, says, If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Even sinners have a conscience... So the Bible, and David's not saying here that everyone becomes as morally reprehensible as they can be. So then why does David say that they become corrupt and they do abominable deeds? This here takes a careful explanation on our part. It's at this point where we have to take into account what evil, what corruption, and what abomination truly is what these things truly are the question then becomes what is sin Wayne Grudem says that sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act in attitude or nature that definition is fine but not in an ultimate sense the big question we have to ask ourselves is what in God's eyes equals corruption and abomination? David says in the passage this morning, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And then he includes that they're corrupt and they do abominable deeds and that none does good. None. 
Not even the Pope. None does good. What is he saying? It takes a very careful definition of what sin is to come to this conclusion. Hebrews 11.6 says this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You've got a better chance of walking across the street into that cemetery over there and asking dead bones to come to life than you do to please God without faith. It is at least equal to the task. It is impossible that God would ever look on you and see you as anything less than an abomination and completely corrupt before his eyes if you don't have faith. Someone did something for me this week. They helped me out with something. And, you know, when people find out I'm a pastor, they like to help out. And I hear this all the time. The person said to me, well, I, I, I said, how much do I owe you? They said, don't worry about it. I've earned, I've earned a greater reward in heaven. I looked at him and I said, but you didn't. Because it doesn't matter if you sell everything you have. It does not matter if you have fulfilled every one of the Ten Commandments. And then sell everything you have. None of that matters because it is impossible to please God without faith. You don't get him without that. John Piper says, all human virtue, all human virtue. What about my uncle who's a Buddhist? He does good things, right? How many times do you hear people say, I just believe if I live a good life, I'm going to go to heaven. And God will understand when I get there. I'm pleading with you this morning. He won't. He doesn't. He's not impressed with you. If he's not impressed with your good works, if the best person in here, the most moral person in here, if God looks at you and says, abomination, corruption, then the worst of you in here are at least in the same boat. It is impossible to please God without faith. Piper says, all human virtue is depraved if it is not from a heart of love directed to the heavenly Father, even, even if the behavior conforms to biblical norms. That's what the rich young ruler did. All of the biblical norms he did perfectly. Paul said, I did him. If you think you're good, I'm better. I'm a Jew of Jews, Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. Not only did he keep all of the right laws, but he was of the right race. God's chosen people. God did not choose Americans. He chose Jews. And he brought salvation through Jews. 
Hey, hey, anti-Semitist. I don't care what you say. God brought salvation through the Jews. I don't care what the, the Reader's Digest at Publix says with the, the Kenny Loggins Jesus on the front who's white and got gold blonde hair. Jesus wasn't white. He was a Jew. And whatever that meant, can you dig it? You can dig it. You don't always dig it, but when you do, you dig Jesus. Sin, in its final analysis, is not a checklist. It's not a checklist. People say to me all the time, I'm not ready yet to come back to church. I've still got some things in my life i got to get out of my life. What? What do you think this is? Christians, stop them dead in their tracks when they say that and say, you got to come as dirty and as rotten as I do. And come on your knees and say, what you desire, God, is a contrite heart. Do you understand this morning that God doesn't want anything from you other than you on your knees saying, God, how could you love me? Why would you do that? I'm not worthy. I love money more than you. And I'm sorry. I love fame more than you, and I'm sorry. And I love drugs and alcohol more than you, and I'm sorry. And I love women more than you, or I love men more than you, or I love my sexuality more than you. I just want to embrace it, God. Why? I feel these desires in my heart. That's what I am, but, but God, I don't want that. I want you. You're more precious than anything I want in my heart. That's what God wants. It is impossible to please God without faith. You will not earn your way to heaven. You will stand there condemned with all of your good works. All of them pale in comparison to faith. What's the solution? As I was reading this week, this passage, I thought initially this was going to be a passage about them and they, the atheist, the non-believer. And I was excited. I was really excited to preach about them and to pick on the atheist and, and to call him a fool. But when I got to the end of this passage, it was like a finger pointing right back at my own face. The passage ends by saying, there is none who seek after God. That means I too say in my heart, there is no God. This is not just the fool's problem. It's your problem and my problem. We all say, there is no God.
Paul says, we have already concluded in Romans 3.9, we have already concluded that the whole world is guilty before God. So now we ask the question, how then can I be wise? And here's what he answers. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, that's after all what we have to have. What God wants, the righteousness of God, what he's looking for from you this morning, what must I do to be saved? The righteousness of God, we're in his courtroom. No other courtroom matters. The only courtroom that's going to matter on that day as we stand before a great white throne is God's courtroom and that's it. No other judge, no other courtroom and we're going to have one thing to say to God that gets us into his favor. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You want to be saved? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For there, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When you read Psalm 14.1 and you read Psalm 53, don't look at the atheist. Look in the mirror and see that it is you who says there is no God. None are good. That's why God sent his son to die so that you, the fool, and I, the fool, might have eternal life. Let that sit for a moment that there is no distinction. Let it sink into your brain and into your heart that you are not special. No one in here is too bad to receive the gospel because no one in here is good enough to receive the gospel. If you're a believer this morning, if you're a believer and you have hatred for people out there who you think can't receive the gospel, remember, you too are the fool. Someone looked at you one day and decided that you should hear the message. Look to the turban. Look to the homosexual community. Look to the transgender and say, Jesus loves you too. You're a fool just like me. If you're a non-believer, you're not special. You won't stand before God one day and say, hey, God, come here. Let me talk to you about what my life was like. Maybe God will listen to you. 
What if God listened to you for a hundred years and listened to every disadvantage you had because of your race or because of your sexuality or because you felt you were born of a certain gender and he listened for a hundred years and he saw that you took all of your good deeds and you laid your good deeds and you said, see God, I'm really, really good. And he listened and he said, you are, but you missed the one thing you needed, me. I like the gym, by the way. I just want to say that. Do you want to be freed from the lie of your perfection this morning, unbeliever? You're not perfect. You're not special. You can't please God without faith. It's impossible. Impossible. You want to be freed from the guilt of your sin this morning? Maybe you've done something really, really, really bad. Really bad. You don't want no one to know about it. And you think, as one rap artist said, I know my destiny is hell. Where did I fail? Maybe you feel that that's your destiny. It doesn't have to be. Your beginning can begin the same way everyone else's begins. On your knees and with a contrite heart. God, I need you. I believe in the name of your son. Do you want to be the righteousness of God? Then say in your heart, Jesus is Lord. There is no distinction. If all are sinful, Jews and Greeks, good and bad, if all are equally condemnable before God, then there is no distinction in the way all men will be made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. You are holy, God. And once again, all of us stand before you in need of your son. Who in here can say, I am the righteousness of God without Jesus Christ? No one. Not the best of us, not the worst of us. Lord, I pray this morning that the gospel will have been preached faithfully and that the fool will not be the fool anymore. That he will get up. That she will come and that she will receive by faith your son. Lord, everything I preach this morning means nothing if you don't open hearts. God, open hearts to receive the bread of life to receive the pouring out of your spirit that they may never thirst again. Amen.